0: Psalm 45, and we'll commence our reading there at the superscription. To the chief musician, upon Shashanim, for the sons of Korah, Mashkel, a song of loves. My heart is inditing a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue, is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia, out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Thus far the reading of God's word, and may he bless it to us this night. As we look at Psalm 45, I've set before you the psalmist. Well, I've not really set him before you. The Spirit of God has done so in the very first verse. This is a psalm of instruction, and the first point of instruction that we're given is of the psalmist himself. He tells us about his own affection, tells us about his own heart, and then proceeds to tell us about his composition, the psalm that we have before us this evening. This is where the instruction begins. And as we look at the first verse, beloved, you recognize that the kind of instruction that we're receiving in Psalm 45 is of a different stripe. What I mean by that is you come to the psalmist and you see that the first thing the man wants to impress upon us as he writes as heaven's penman is this. Those who would be instructed are right about this theme must be careful, must be spiritual minds. Our psalmist certainly is. He's a man who knows these things, but is genuinely and deeply affected by them. He comes to a theme that requires the whole heart, the whole man. That's the first point of instruction. Before we ever come to the king, which is the principal subject of Psalm 45, we're told In the very first verse, if you wish to meditate on these things, this is something that requires great spirituality. This is something that requires a renewed mind and a renewing mind. And why is that? Well, friend, of course, the principal subject is the king of Psalm 45. Uh, The significance of the bride in the last portion of this psalm is only so because of the greatness of the king, whom we encounter from the second verse and following. It is the king himself who is this principal theme. And so the psalmist would have us know, before we can know this king, our hearts need to be rightly attuned. Our, Our lives, really, must be marked by this deep affection for the theme. and Why is that? I don't mean to prolong the, the introduction, but there's a very simple reason for this, isn't there? The scriptures are not interested in holding out any other Christ than the Christ who is there. What I mean by that, the scriptures have no interest in putting before us a Christ whom we may imagine. No, the Christ who is there and knowing the Christ who is there is the principal focus of Psalm 45. Do you wish to know this Jesus? Well, beloved, we're told at the very first verse, you can only know him as one whose heart has been renewed, as one whose mind is being renewed. That's the only way. And so we come to our theme this evening. We transition from the psalmist in the first verse and come in the second to this king. And what's striking, first of all, is that we're told that the psalmist already was going to bring about good words, an excellent testimony to this king. But strikingly in the second verse, we're told that this testimony that is given, these words that are written, these things are addressed not to the world, not even to Zion, but to the king himself. These are excellent words that are spoken to the king. This, in other words, beloved, is a testimony to kingship that is rendered first and foremost to Christ himself. But as we look at these three lines that are in the second verse, I want you to notice, friend, at the very onset, as the psalmist sets before the king this description he uses phrases. In fact, each line of the second verse is a phrase that is unique to all of Scripture. You will find no analogy, you will find no analogy thematic or linguistic to any other part of God's Word. I me to demonstrate that for you. Take first of all the words, thou art fairer. That occurs nowhere else in the Hebrew Scriptures. Nowhere. Thou art fairer than the children of men. You could literally translate that, than the sons of Adam. The word Adam there is used to describe all of mankind. The sense is, in this very first line, this king has no peer among the human race. No peer among the sons of Adam. Take the second line. Grace is poured into thy lips. First of all, grace or favor is poured. Again, that occurs nowhere else in Scripture. The word poured there has the idea of perhaps pouring molten metal into a cast or, or water being poured onto dry land and being drunk by it. Grace, favor is found throughout the Scriptures. Take Noah. Noah found grace in the sight of God, Genesis 6, 8. It's given, the Lord will grace and glory give, Psalm 84.11, but nowhere else in Scripture is it poured. Nowhere. This is poured like water, like oil, into a basin, into a receptacle, and into or upon his lips. The grace that the psalmist has in view, it being poured here onto the king's lips, is manifestly unlike any grace that is extended to any saint there is no parallel for this text in all of scripture but take the third line therefore god hath blessed thee forever bless of course means either to be endowed with the greatest good or to be praised now as you look at this text you'll notice that there are other items in scripture that hold out these kinds of blessings take david's house let the house of thy servant david be blessed forever. The house of thy servant, David, be blessed forever. Second Samuel 7. Or take David's throne. King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. These are objects, we're told, that will be forever blessed. There is only one person, though, in all of Scripture that is described by the Spirit of God as being eternally blessed. And it is Jehovah himself. No one else. David's throne will be blessed forever. David's house will be blessed forever. But only the Lord is blessed forever. And in verse 2, this is the very king whom the psalmist has in view. This is a unique text. This is the text I think we quickly read and sing over without seeing just how clearly the Spirit of God sets before us the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, without Hebrews 1. Without that interpretation the Apostle gives us in that epistle. Just this very second verse tells us, only Christ could fit such a description. Only Christ has no peer among the sons of Adam. Only Christ has this grace poured into him like a receptacle in a way that no other saint has ever received. And of course, only Christ, who is the divine son, could be equated with the same blessing that Jehovah alone holds to himself. God, blessed forever. David was ruddy and with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to, for Samuel tells us, but this one fairer than the children of men. David found favor with God. He was Israel's sweet psalmist, but grace was not poured into him as a dispensary. David was blessed, but everlasting blessing, only preserved, only for the throne preserved in Messiah. The psalmist carries to us Jesus Christ as the king whom we have to have in view. But even as we keep that in mind, beloved, there are, there's a distinction that we can't miss. As the psalmist conveys to us the glory of this king, the glory of our Christ, he does so not reflecting on that glory that is essential, uh, that is, that is essential or eternal glory. We're thinking here about his mediatorial glory. The glory of the incarnate Son. The glory of Christ as he is furnished to accomplish redemption. And why is that important? Well friend, it's important because the divine nature, apart from the covenant of grace, the divine nature apart from the Lord Jesus Christ as our Redeemer, is only to us a consuming fire. There is no wedding between the church and God absolute apart from Christ. No, the psalmist has in view the glory of Christ as he is mediator, as he is our redeemer. And that brings us to our theme this evening. And that is that the glory of Christ's person, the psalmist teaches us here, is exhibited in his office and work. The glory that the psalmist is looking to here is that of the person of Christ and exhibited in his office and work. And I want us to see, first of all, how this is exhibited, then, God willing, equipped, and how he is, as our Redeemer, exalted in all the ways that the psalmist holds these things forth towards us. So take, first of all, how this glory is exhibited or revealed. Thou art fairer than the children of men. That is, in himself, and as he is vested with a mediatorship. Now, beloved, when you think of the divine nature, we think of essential glory, eternal glory. And we could say this, there is none like unto the God of Jeshurun, who rideth upon the heaven in thy help, and in his excellency on the sky. Of course, the divine perfections, that are eternal, that are essential to the divine nature, are of course without peer. He is altogether holy, altogether unique. But when we think of Christ as He comes, as our Redeemer, His mediatorial glory is also without peer, though in a different sense. Worthy, says, says men and angels, is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So, in the Song of Solomon, Christ is described, My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among ten thousand. And beloved, what those texts hold out to us is that the mediator himself possesses glory, peerless glory. Yes, and that glory, of course, is predicated upon that essential and eternal glory. But if you like what the mediator does, as we look to Jesus Christ, God-man, if you like, in the words of the apostles, in the apostle, in his face, we behold in a peculiar way, in a special way, the glory of God exhibited. Now, friend, as we look at this text, that shows us very pointedly that divine beauty is exhibited in Christ. In himself, of course, this is the case. He is the brightness of his Father's glory, the express image of his person. Hebrews 1. And so that means then, that if we are to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is fairer, fairer than the children of men, who is peerless even as our Redeemer, endowed with this mediatorial glory, as we look to this Christ, what should we see? We should see divine perfection manifest. We should see the glory of God, as again the Apostle tells us, in the face of Jesus Christ. That mercy... In Him and truth are met together. That righteousness and peace have kissed each other in Him. Now friend, we do need to keep in mind, don't we? That as we look to the glory of God as manifest in the incarnate Son, we of course are not saying that the humanity of Christ is capable of infinitude. uh, But in the union of natures, as the divine and the human are held in one person, The incarnation is nevertheless revelation and, as Hebrews 1 argues, the greatest revelation of divine perfection. Even as mediator, we should see the perfections of our God revealed to us in ways that are genuinely profound, in ways that should lead us to worship. Just to give you a few of these instances, take the omnipotence of God you have here the Lord Jesus Christ in his state of humiliation calming the winds and the waves, prompting this, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? What manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves are at his back in command? Well, friend, this all testifies, does it not, that his divine nature is such He is one that could say, Hitherto to the waves shalt thou come, but no further. And here shall thy proud waves be stayed. Job 38. Beloved, see that too, that moment. An exercise of sovereignty over the lesser creatures. But also, really, a testimony. As he spares his disciples from that storm. That as he is head over all things to the church, he will secure her good. He rules. His omnipotence, as it were, is employed for her good. And it's only because of this, because our mediator is omnipotent, that in all things, his people are more than conquerors through him. Only because he is omnipotent, only because he is sovereign in all things, can his people be assured they are conquerors in every providence. But take the wisdom of God. Luke 2, even in this moment whenever he is quite young, before he is taken back into oblivion, before he's brought into his ministry, note how people respond to Christ. All that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. This is Christ as he is mediator, the incarnate Logos, yes, but Christ as he is in a state of humiliation, and yet all were astonished at his understanding then. And then, friend, take, of course, what you have in Proverbs 8. What is that an exhibition of but just this, that he is the one who says, counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. So Paul says Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The righteousness of God is manifest Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God Hebrews 9:14. He was a lamb without blemish and without spot. He was he is our righteous redeemer who has obeyed as a man In fact, as a man born under the law, he rendered obedience to the law from the perfection of his person and without any blemish whatsoever. Blemishless obedience to the law was never seen since the fall of Adam. But the infinite value of his obedience was never known. Even when Adam in his state of innocence remained, still the infinitude of Christ's obedience was something that magnified the righteousness of the law in a way man never could. Now, beloved, you see also here, of course, that not only is it the case that the wisdom and the righteousness of God are manifest through Christ, but take John's own words. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. On this text, John Owen writes, Hereby alone is the divine nature as such, that is, loving, made known unto us, namely in the mission, person, and office of the Son of God. Without this, all is darkness, as unto the true nature and supreme operation of this love. Owen is simply saying to us, that if we would see the love of God, if we would see that perfection, the goodness of God manifest in love to creatures, all is darkness unless we see Christ. What we see here, friend, is that every divine perfection is exalted and gloriously seen in Jesus every divine perfection, exalted. And certainly, if that's the case, beloved, how, how much and how deeply should we meditate on these themes? That in the face of our glorious Redeemer, we have one that is certainly fairer than the children of men, peerless in every regard. But take, secondly, that phrase, grace is poured into thy lips. The idea there is of equipment. And what I mean by that is, here in the text you have grace communicated to us as something like a substance. Something perhaps like anointing oil. And really, that brings us to the text that we read from Isaiah 61. There the prophet tells us, speaking as Christ himself tells us, in the voice of Christ, the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings. His lips, as it were, are poured, or grace, rather, is poured into his lips. And why, says the prophet, says the prophet, that he might preach good tidings? And so exegetes throughout the running centuries say here, in this moment, the psalmist looks to the prophetic ministry of Christ, and certainly for good reason. We see here Christ preaching, anointed to preach with grace. Anointed, as it were, that he might really bring to the people of God good words. But friend, as you look at this text, it's important that we understand exactly why the prophetic ministry of Christ is so unique. It was not merely discursive. When we think about the office of Christ as prophet, often, and for good reason, we think of special revelation. We think of the scriptures, and justly so. We think of the prophets who spoke by the Spirit of Christ, that Spirit that was in them, says Peter. We think, of course, of Christ as it is He who is the telos, the end of the entire Word of God. But beloved, it's also important for us to understand that the work of Christ as prophet is not merely discursive. Not merely, not merely the work of setting information before sinners. It is not only discursive, it is operative. It is operative. You remember, beloved, how the Word of God brings this to us. The dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. It's not just the case that Christ is prophet because he communicates truth to his people. Christ is a prophet unlike any other because his is a quickening voice. He communicates truth and through His effective ministry brings sinners to life. That too is part of His prophetic office. That is the communication of grace. Not just gracious words, but actually effective grace. Now beloved, this teaches us, doesn't it, that Christ does indeed communicate grace through His Word. And what is His Word? Scripture is referred to as the Word of Christ. Take what I just cited to you from 1 Peter. The prophets spoke by the Spirit of Christ. It was Christ in them, says Peter, that was the Spirit of inspiration. And so the prophets are the Word of Christ. Take the Psalms. Well, in Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, we're told that the Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs of Scripture are the word of Christ, explicitly. So the prophets and also the Psalms are Christ's word. But take even the law. Whenever the writer to the Hebrews comes to the wilderness years, he says this, Unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them. And what's so striking about that is, in the second chapter of that book, the apostle labors on the point that this gospel is communicated through the Son. What was it? What was that gospel that was through the law while it was, as well, the word of Christ? Christ's gospel. And so, of course, beloved, as we look at our text, we can't miss that all of Scripture is indeed the word of Christ. Grace has been poured onto his lips that we might receive what we have before us, and by God's grace, even in our own language. But understand, as we've just said, that this word is effective through his ministry. Through the word, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Take Christ's prayer. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. It is a word that God uses by his grace to make dead souls lively with faith. It is a word by his grace that even sanctifies sinners. Beloved, this is a word that really by God's grace and through the ministration of his Spirit communicates grace to the Lord's own. Ours is a Christ who is a quickening and an enlightening prophet king. Grace is poured into his lips. Beloved, not just that the words would be sweet, but indeed that souls would be saved. And if that's the case, beloved, we should have we should be on guard against limited expectations with regard to this word. You see, to have a limited expectation with regard to the word of God is to put limits upon this Christ who has been made our anointed prophet who, by his grace, pours grace through that word upon his people. To limit the word is to limit Christ. And so, friend, we should seek, shouldn't we, through these means, through the word, those quickening, those reviving influences that the people of God require. We, we should long for that quickening that is so often held out to us by way of petition in the scriptures. And, friend, should we also not be prepared? Should we not have hearts that are careful to prepare to come under this word? If such great things may come to us at the good pleasure of this king who pours grace upon his people through these means, should we not be quick to fall on our knees before we come to this moment, pleading that he would do so? Thirdly and finally, beloved, we come to that last statement. As the psalmist reflects on the king, he says thus, Therefore, God hath blessed thee forever. That is, praised and forever exalted. And I want you to notice, as you look at the text, the therefore is crucial. Therefore, these things have come to him. Therefore, God hath blessed thee forever. As he was equipped, and as he is faithful, in that this grace has been poured upon his lips, and of course he would bestow that grace to God's people.
1: Therefore,
0: God hath blessed thee, Forever. And beloved, that teaches us, doesn't it, that the mediatorial exaltation of Christ, not the essential glory that He has intrinsically, but the glory of Christ as He would possess it as our Redeemer, comes because of the redemption that He has secured. It's the very words that are held out to us in the Scriptures. We could have read it, I suppose, even this evening. But as you look at Philippians 2, it's the very idea that the Apostle insists on. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Note the wherefore. As he became obedient to the death, even the death of the cross, wherefore God hath also highly exalted him? Take Christ's own words in John 17 I have glorified thee on the earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do, and now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Beloved, see what the text tells us. It's the very same thing that the psalmist insists on in Psalm 45. As he thinks of the mediatorial glory of Christ, why does he think of the exaltation here? Because he sees that upon success as the redeemer of God's people, God would therefore exalt him. Yes, of course, the eternal Son of God was always, is always in his divine nature exalted without any diminution or addition to his glory. But here the psalmist points us back to the economy of God, to the one who would become God-man and would be exalted for the sake of God. Of the church, Now friend, we read from John 10. And I, I read to you the 17th verse with some emphasis for a reason. And that is because there also you have a very similar theme. You remember in that text that there Christ tells us, it's striking language, as he tells his people that he will lay down his life for his sheep, he says, therefore doth my Father love me, Because I lay down my life that I might take it again. Of course, the eternal Son of God was always lovely to the Father. Of course, the eternal Son of God needed nothing to elicit the love of His heavenly Father. But what do we make of that text? Beloved, I think Matthew Pohl very helpfully leads us through this. He says here, his father loveth him with the more exceeding love for laying down his life to purchase sinners' redemption and salvation. I suppose that's worth repeating, isn't it? His father loveth him with the more exceeding love for laying down his life to purchase sinners' redemption and salvation. it well, as we look at this text... When we see our Redeemer so highly exalted. When we see the love, the triune love of God manifest even in Christ's exaltation. What does that communicate to us? Beloved, it should communicate to us, of course, the triune love of our God. Take, if you will, permit an analogy here. A parent loves the one who does some good for their children. If a parent finds out that their child was in great need, and somebody met that need, that person who has been so kind to their child, of course, will take their parent's heart. The parent will love them. But in John 10.17, and really even in our own text this evening, you have this. The Father delighting in the Son as the Son secures His people's redemption. It's a staggering thing, isn't it? Oh, the manifold love of God for sinners. Christ himself makes it almost an adornment of the son's loveliness to the father in doing his people this good by redeeming them. Therefore, God hath blessed thee forever. You have poured grace upon my people. You have done the work of a faithful, faithful redeemer. Therefore, God hath blessed thee forever. As we close, friend, it does beg the question this evening. What token of divine love do you crave? What evidence of God's favor do you long for? Are there temporal needs that you long to see met? Maybe a long life. Maybe financial security. Maybe health and strength. Or what are those great spiritual needs? Great meltings of heart. Great hatred, greater hatred for sin. A greater experience of the truths of the gospel. Would those tokens of love be the things that you crave this evening? Well, friend, none of those things... Are bad in themselves, and in fact, many of them are quite good. But what does the text hold out to us this evening? Does it not tell us that there is more love revealed in this Christ than in meeting any of those needs? There is more loveliness in this Christ a greater token of divine love in this Christ than even in the best imaginable providence, spiritual or temporal. This Christ is altogether fair. Beloved, if you were granted the greatest things, a long and comfortable life here, with meltings of heart, with great experiences, spiritual experiences here, and were conducted to heaven hereafter, still, Christ would be the greatest token of divine love that you have. To have him is to have the one who is fairer than the children of men. And so, friend, the psalmist takes us to the Christ who is there, the one who is peerless, the one who is filled with grace, that he might then give grace to his own, one exalted as mediator. This is the Christ who is there. And beloved, you and I will see him. As Job says in Job 19 with our very eyes, is this your Christ? Is this the Christ you expect to see on that last great day? Friend, there will be many who will be surprised that this Christ is so personal, is so real, is so objective that their imaginations could not change him. And so do you know the Christ who is there? The psalmist, as he writes under inspiration of God's spirit, puts him before us this evening. A Christ, fairer than the children of men, filled with grace for his people, exalted above every name that is named, whether in heaven or on earth. Know, beloved, this Christ. Amen.